welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 101 of Bell to Bell with Bobby Blaze. I am your host, Professor Jeremy Vilmer, and joining us now, still Arn Anderson's favorite enhancement talent, Bobby Blaze. All right, yeah, I'm still over like that, baby, and I'm going to tell you, welcome back, wrestling fans. We appreciate you listening in to at least 100 of these episodes. We hope, you, hope you've caught all of them. Uh, if you have it, you can go back to the archives and get them. Man, that episode 100 was a good one. Um, not that some of them, not that all of them aren't good, but that was uh, one we really on. Had a lot of good feedback on it. Appreciate that very much. Um, going to just throw this out there, Jeremy, real quick. Mm-hmm. It's uh, probably Tuesday morning by the time you're listening to this, and you fucking miss Valentine's Day, people. <laughs> so uh, we're recording this on Valentine's Day. Hopefully you had a good Valentine's Day. Um, hell, even if you had sex and had sex by yourself in your own bed, that's a good thing, you know. Um, hope you had a nice Valentine's Day. But um, welcome back, and uh, we're looking forward to a fucking hundred more of these son of a gun, man. Yeah, absolutely. I I think we've got at least a hundred in us, so we should be okay there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Last week's episode that was a lot of fun to do to put together. I mean, just just the whole thing was a lot of fun to deal with. Uh, I you know not to seem like we were blowing our own horns or anything, but having all the messages come in was really cool and a lot of fun to play. And I got a message. Yeah. I got a message last week from William Harding that basically just said, "So you're a Missy Hyatt fan, huh?" So, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's good. Um, appreciate all the guys that called in. That was really cool of you. Um, some of our more loyal fans, and uh, you know what? Anyone uh, can be a part of this show. All we do, you know, you follow us on Twitter. Jeremy's at the Geekish Cast. I'm at uh, Bobby Blaze 744. Or the joint account at Bell to Bell Blaze. You know, send us your ideas. Um, you know, send us your feedback. Uh, rate us on Google or iTunes or wherever you're listening, Spotify. You know, and just be a part of the show, man, because that, that fan interaction, it's, it's uh, just like going to the matches live, man. It's a little bit different when you get your name called out on the podcast and you get to be a part of it and have your say, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, feed us those ideas. You know, we've had... Uh, you know, several really good top tens just off of some someone's feedback on something we've missed, you know, or left out along the way, um, not intentionally, but but for a purpose of saying we're doing one of our top tens uh, to use as as um, as a reason. You know, we left Dusty off of the list, and it created a, a whole podcast just on Dusty. You know, um, so. Uh, with that said, we we appreciate all the feedback we have been getting. All the feedback this week I got, man, was very very positive. Said it sounded like you guys were having fun, um, which we were, and uh, and it was a good time. So uh, glad everyone uh, enjoyed that podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so again, thank you everybody who sent something in. Thank you everybody who listens, even if you didn't send yes. something in. We appreciate you being there. Uh, like Bobby said, if you've got an idea for an episode or want to, you know. Uh, sound off on something hit us up on twitter uh, i believe you can still leave us a voicemail at our uh, uh podcast website on anchor.fm slash bell to bell blaze i think that's still there uh, spotify bought anchor so a lot of things have changed so i don't know what's different yet or not but um i imagine it'll start getting more integration into spotify so I think there'll probably be some changes the way the show is hosted, and I've also seen where they're doing things like if you just put the show on Spotify, you can use their music library. Stuff like that is coming as well. All right. And also, don't forget, we do have a, a, a Facebook page, uh, Bell to Bell Blaze. Uh, I'm not a part of that. Jeremy takes care of that. And I know that some in, there's some interaction over there as well. So uh, we do appreciate that. It's nothing personal against anyone on Facebook or anything like that. It's just that's I just try to limit my uh, stream time, I guess, is the best way to tell you folks. You know, um, I'm not saying I won't be back on there, Instagram. Um, I really instagram for a while and then i started hitting some trigger points and um no no nothing just more of a personal decision you know to get off of that as well so uh, uh not mad at anyone not black black not 
blocked by anyone or not trying to block anyone, nothing like that. Just uh, I'm just sticking with Twitter. It's something simple and easy for me to do and have fun with and and um, market the podcast and market my books and, and uh, meet a few people along the way and become friends with them. So yeah. um, with, um, with that said, I do have a tweet of the week in honor of Black History Month. If you don't care, I'm going to share that, Jeremy. Please do. Um, I found this. <clears throat> And uh, I was really fascinated by it. It's by um, Young Kings Wrestling. It's at YK Wrestling. And it says, they don't tell you about the time four black women, Ethel Johnson, Ramona Isabella, Babs Wingo, and Marva Scott, main evented a Boston Garden in the 1950s. And it's hashtagged uh, Black Wrestling History, Black History Month, uh, Black Wrestling, etc. I found it to be very fascinating. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to look up these four ladies. And I did. So a shout-out to the uh, Young King Wrestling at YK Wrestling. Um, Ethel Johnson um, started wrestling at the age of 16. Um, <clears throat> she was the, uh, the biggest attraction to hit girl wrestling since girl wrestling began, they said. Uh, she was trained by Mildred Burke. And, uh, of course, promoter back in was Billy Wolf. But um, Babs... Wingo apparently was her older sister, and she had started in 1950. And um, I didn't have a lot of information on a Ramona Isabella. Uh, she did work a lot for NWA. But then again, in 1952, Marva Scott started wrestling. She was Ethel Johnson and Babs Wingo's sister, too. There's, so there's three sisters involved in this match, and I thought that was pretty cool. But also, even though they're showing a match uh, from... Um, the Boston Gardeners highlights if you go to that site um, on their Twitter feed. But in, um, in Baltimore in 1952, they drew 9,000, or excuse me, 3,600 fans, over 3,000 people. Two years later, this trio of uh, sisters, um, they got top billing, uh, Johnson and Wingo did, with Gorgeous George. And they drew 9,000 fans out in Kansas City. So, anyway, it's just something to add to Black History Month. I, I had some uh, had to do a little bit of deep digging because, of course, it takes you to all these little other sites that, you know, um, other corporations own and things. Uh-huh. Trying to, you know, but it was there. And um, I didn't want to go into a big history lesson. I'm going to continue to read about uh, these, these four girls. I thought it was really interesting. Um, and it's right. Sometimes they don't tell you about the things, you know, stuff they don't teach you in the history books or, uh, they, you know, you don't realize a certain. We're going to be talking about some some different wrestling things today when we get into our list that, you know, not everyone knows about, but you certainly certainly should know about. So that's why I went ahead with that tweet in honor of Black History Month and also these uh, four ladies that participated in this match and apparently worked main events in several other major cities, too, back in the 50s. In the 60s, um, I think one of them finished up. Um, I think it was who, uh, Ramona Isabella. She must be the youngest because she actually had a match against uh, um, Debbie Combs in 19. I think it said 1976. So uh, she must have finished up, you know, later than the others did. But um, that's pretty cool uh, just to find out that kind of history, man. And um, if you got something unique like that, you want to send it in. Uh, please feel free to because, uh, like I said, when they got top billing with Gorgeous Jordan, he's actually going to be on um, one of our topics today as we get started. Uh, the professor has come up with a, uh, a terrific uh, idea for this week's podcast, and I'll let him go ahead and explain what's going to take place. Uh, did I leave out anything here, Professor, as far as shout-outs or anything? Um, uh, I mean, no, because you know, coming off last week's episode, I feel like if we try to name anybody – all we're going to do is leave people out. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I think we're good there. I don't have any just because of that reason. Um, I did have a question of the week. Yes. And it's something I've been trying to remember to do every week, but I've been doing a real half-assed job of it. But here's a question for you, Bobby, for everybody listening. I want to hear your opinions on this. Yes. If Magnum hadn't been in that car wreck, would Sting have been as big a star? Okay, let me say this real quickly, too, before I answer that question, mm-hmm. okay? This question, fans, please feel free to answer. I answered last week's question, gave my opinion. Um, I don't think we got much feedback from that particular question, maybe because it was such a big episode. So even though I'm going to give my answer, and, and Jeremy can agree or disagree, I think he agreed last week with uh, with the way things were, um, 
But please feel free to share your opinion. There at one time, several people were responding back and giving us their opinions. Um, I forgot what some of those questions were now. So, uh, yeah, just because I'm giving my on-air opinion doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just my opinion. So hit us up on those Twitters and, and give us your feedback as to what you think. Now, if, if Magnum hadn't been in that horrific car wreck, would Sting have been as big as a big star, been as a big a star as he was? I absolutely think so. You think so? I think I do, and I'll tell you why. Um, I think Magnum would have been an even bigger star, of course. There's no doubt about that. I think that um, Sting, people had seen him without face paint, with face paint. He had that body, um, and he was willing to learn. You know, he had worked out in um, uh, Mid-South. He had worked, you know, uh, Texas, I think, some. California, I think he was willing to make it no matter what. Now, um, this is going to sound contradictory. He wouldn't have probably got to work with Flair as much as he did early on and and got and get that good ground-based education right there that, has, that you got your major heel that you're in there with night after night to follow. Mm-hmm. So that may have been a um, – depending on who he would have went with, if he, you know – I think that's a factor right there. He where he wouldn't have been able to work with Flair every night, um, and maybe had to work with another talent. Um, had they brought him up a little bit, there's a lot of there's a, there was a lot of talent that heals there. They could have pit, pitted him against. So I think eventually he would have emerged, you know, as a as a baby face, um, but maybe at a slower rate. But with his build. And apparently his attitude, you know, was all about, you know, he, he was willing to learn and pay his dues. Um, I, I do think, and his interview started, you know, coming across with just the, the yelling air. But yeah. nonetheless, I do think he would eventually, um, you know, f- found a way. I don't know if they'd have put him maybe uh, with with any of the other four horsemen. Uh, I don't know if they had put him with um, uh, against the Barry Windham, maybe, you know, someone like that. Uh, to work with night in and night out, um, you know, may, maybe not as quickly would his star have risen, but I do think um, he still would have been a big star. In fact, he, you know, he may have been one of them guys that just showed up at Vince's and and uh, in New York and had that body, had a little bit of experience, and they said, "Look, this guy," and they and they put another gimmick on him. You know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> it happened to his partner, the Warrior. Oh yeah. Less. Uh, uh, less uh, skilled, not willing to to apparently put the effort into it that that Sting did, and he got over huge up there. So who's to say it that a Sting just didn't show up there and they say, you know, uh, well you're already a star. Look at you, throw some pay, face paint on you, and you know, Warrior Two or Dingo Two, you know what I'm saying? Whatever I mean, it was, yeah. The fact knows, you know. So I do think he would have found his own way, but not as quickly. And um, um, and I think again, I want to say this. I think Magnum. I think everyone knows this. Magnum probably would have been a even a you know he would have been a mega fucking star. Yeah. You know, over more than he was because he had he had that look. He had the body. Um, he could talk and he could certainly wrestle. I mean, you know, he he could wrestle and, and work. You know, and uh, so uh, yeah, that's my answer, man. What do you think, Mike? Close. Well, I, you know, I don't know. Let me, as I game this out, as I just roll it around in my head some, um, you know, because it was Flair that decided that Sting should be where they focus next. That was his call. Um, And I don't know if that would have happened if Magnum was still around. But here's the other thing that while you were talking, it occurred to me, and maybe this is where you were headed with one of your thoughts, that if Magnum had stayed around, maybe Jim Crockett Promotions would have been the breakaway pull-out front star. I mean, there's a chance that Magnum could have had the drawing power to do that. And if that had been the case, there would have been more room for other big stars around him. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but then again, like you said, you know, Sting maybe with Magnum there going, well, I'm never going to get ahead because of that. Let me go. Let me go to New York and yeah. maybe broke out there. Um, I don't know. I, I would think I would think somehow he'd become a star because, you know, yeah. um, I remember watching him when I was a kid and just thinking, Jesus, this guy's amazing. You know, and that was even when he was just starting to break away from um, Eddie Gilbert, you know. Yeah. 
just the the amount of intensity and the you know like and he was he was huge back in the day when you look at how big he was when he was younger like just muscle wise yeah yeah, the guy was a wall of a man um but i don't know if he would have been the star like he was at wcw right right yeah yeah Good, good question of the week there. Uh, send your send your answers in. Uh, let us know. You know what you think, man. Would he have, you know, been as big as the star as he was? Um, that's a good. Another good question. Um, okay, so I guess we're going to start here with the uh, five things every wrestling fan should know. Now we're not preaching to you on this, so don't want to come across that way. So I want to kind of preface that. Uh, the professor came up with an idea of something we're working on long term, and I'll let him kind of. Not to let the cat out of bag or anything, but he can kind of come out to some of the stuff we've kind of discussed, and, and he's come up with these five things every wrestling fan should know. So I'm going to let him just kind of introduce the first one, excuse me, and go for that. It's not a history lesson in a sense that we expect you remember every one of these particular dates and every one of these particular names, and it's not a pop quiz or anything, but it's just something that I think that um, when, when he sent it to me, cause we would work on another idea, and we were kind of stuck on it, to be honest with you, both of us were. And when he sent this idea, I was like, yeah, thank you, this works, because it's something we both, uh, as wrestling fans, uh, obviously have a keen interest in. And um, with all of our listeners, uh, assuming um, that you're wrestling fans, that's probably why you tune in, uh, this is something that you may, may be of real interest to you. That um that you already may or may not know, but uh, please feel free to share it. And and if you uh, once again, it's one of those things that's interactive. You can let us know you didn't know this, or you knew that, and and where we go to next with it. So uh, go ahead, Professor, start yeah. us off there. And and I do want to include the caveat that if you don't know these things, or if you're a wrestling fan and you don't feel like you should have to know these things, you're right. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I just think that as a fan of something, you should have some grounding or you should have at least been exposed to some of the background. You don't have to memorize it. You don't have to be able to recite things by route. There is no test. And, you know, we're not gatekeepers. We're not saying you can't be a wrestling fan if. So, you know, don't even don't even think that's what we're trying to do. Right. Um, But that being said, I wanted to come up with five things that I think should be rolling around in your head somewhere. And the first one is going to be the formation of the NWA. Uh, July 18th, 1948, by Pinky George, Orville Brown, Al Haft, Harry Light, Sam Muchnick, Don Owen, and Tony Stetcher. Um, you know, this group would go on to basically put a chokehold on all of pro wrestling. They were the major ruling council slash body over pro wrestling uh, starting in 1948. Almost every single world title that you can point your finger at, AWA, WCW, TNA, ECW, WWWF titles, can all be traced back to their NWA world title. And a little interesting thing I just discovered over the last year or two was that every member promotion in the NWA had their own tag world tag team champions and their own U.S. champions. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that part there because um, we kind of discussed that. We was going through the NWA uh, when we first started back for our episodes, and I, I really found that interesting that each territory, if you will, um, or owner, you know, they, they had – you had your world NWA champion, but you also had your world tag team champion and a U.S. champion. Uh, you know, once belts nowadays, I guess, get trickled down, trickled down, trickled down to, oh, let's put this 24-7 belt on this guy. Let's put the fucking Waffle House belt on this guy or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that um, every every area should have at least, you know, a couple of three belts. And with those belts being, you know, your, your main champion and then a, then a tag team champion. And then, you know, the, the U.S. champion or, or even the Western States champion or the, the Southern, Southeastern champion, you know, someone that represents that area of the country you're at. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's that's pretty cool. It's almost like um, uh, with the WWE having their uh, Intercontinental Championship. You know, that that sincerely means something. I made a little joke last week about it. Um, uh, and I was, I, was, I was being serious when I was joking. You know, you can just make up your own title, but that's a haul-ass uh, 
uh, title to have. Man, a lot of people have had that that's moved on to become world oh. champions. And so that's why these tag team championship belts in these territories for the NWA and the U.S. champion, that gave you something to shoot for to eventually, uh, if you every time the main champion came to your town and you had a U.S. champion or your local, you know, again, Southeastern, Western, whoever it is, champion, someone to face that, oh, we got a shot. Someone from our area could become NWA champion. But if not, he's still the U.S. champion for that part of the, of the United States. So I think that's very important. Again, I don't, I'm not going to remember July 18th, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I could, but uh, uh, I do know 1948, you know, we went over that enough here. And I think that's important that people realize, oh, okay, a lot of things happened um, in professional wrestling. Uh, what do you want to call it, the golden age and the second coming or the new era or what have you. Um, it all kind of goes back to, we're going to go back even farther than that like we did on a pre-NWA in just a bit, but it all goes back to this NWA uh, formation in 1948 and how important that was. Yeah, and uh, the reason they did that was because the original world championship had splintered so many times by then that they wanted to get it back to one world, one world champion was the idea. Um. But, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, I don't think you have to have the dates remembered or even remember all the names involved, but you should know that 70-some-odd years ago, the NWA was formed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Good stuff. Yeah. You want to go on to the next point? Yeah, sure. Um, names of important champions. Um, you know, that's it's one of those things, again, we talked about a little bit earlier uh, uh, in our once we started coming back from our hiatus there. And that is uh, some of the names we knew was like uh, uh, some of us heard of uh, 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 George Hackensmith or uh, Frank Gotch or, or Luthez or Strangler Lewis, uh, you know, or Buddy Rogers. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, again, it's important to know these names, uh, especially nowadays for, for people that's getting into wrestling. They only may, you know, sure they might remember the Stone Colds or Ric Flair's or the Hulk Hogan's. But before those guys, you know, before um, – what I say pre-taping before WrestleMania one in 1985, there was professional wrestling, you know, that yeah. wasn't the birth of it. So we go back to these guys that laid the foundation for, um, professional wrestling. I know a uh, strangler Lewis there. That was that gold dust trio. Um, they had their, um, three people involved, I, involved in it. And, uh, they ran their, their towns and they, you know, had their champion there. Um, and what it meant to, to have a champion. Um, the uh, the one thing out of that, of course, in Buddy Rogers, if you take that, if we go to what, like 1963, uh, that title goes to the WWF, WWF at the time. Mm-hmm. And also, I want you to talk about more so uh, when I mentioned Thez, but you go to Hacklesmith and uh, uh, Gotch and these great wrestlers, you know, some of them just refused to be beat. Yeah. Uh, and it couldn't be beat um, unless they finally, you know, would work a match. But then Thez, of course, he, as we talked about, has united a lot of these champions. And while I was kind of leaving from there, and and you and, and and we left someone off this list because he's on his own and he'll be the next one brought up. But yeah. um, also in 1925, the first uh, K Fave match, if you want to bring that up too, um, just kind of. Stepping across some different, uh, excuse me, bounds here um, on these championship names. Some of them you may or may not have heard of, you know. Yeah. Well, it's, um, you know, George Hackenschmidt was the first recognized world champion in 1905. Um, and, of course, Frank Gotch is the guy who took that title off of him and retired as world champion. You know, there's a lot of other names in there that become important. Uh, Zabisco. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Stetcher. I mean, there's a lot of important names in there, but really the ones that stand out are the kind of the guys we're talking about here. And, you know, an interesting thing I came across the other day, Bobby, was um, Ed Strangler Lewis took his name from Evan Strangler Lewis in the 1890s. Okay. Yeah, so he, he just like Larry Zabisco would later do yeah. with Stanislaus Zabisco's name and all these other guys. Yeah. Um, you know, and I probably should have put Vern, Vern Gagne on here as well uh, for when he left and started the AWA. Right, but, okay. Um, you know, Buddy Rogers, <clears throat> he was the first WWF champion. He was a former NWA champion. The McMahon, uh, McMahon and Toots Mon did not care for the way that was working out, so they named Buddy Rogers their own champion. 
Vern Gagne didn't like the fact that he wasn't getting a title shot, so he left and formed the AWA and became its world champion. Yeah. Um, and let's see, Luthez was a guy who... So Orville Brown was supposed to be the first world champion in the NWA, and he was, but then he had a career-ending car wreck as well. Right, right. Um, so they're like, okay, who do we go to next? Well, they went to Luthez. Now, Luthez is the kind of cat that could snatch a hold on you out of anywhere. And he could either, you know, work a shoot or shoot a work or he'd just beat your right. ass, you know. So they had him go around and start gobbling up these other versions of the world title into the NWA championship. And that includes the National Wrestling Association world title. I believe the New York Athletic Commission. I believe the um, the other AWA title was in there. I believe the MWA Midwest uh, title was in there. But he was the guy who really put the shine on and solidified and made the NWA title what it was. Yeah, and let me add this real quickly. If if I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with, with most most of what you're speaking about here. If you're not, go back several episodes. Um, what we call like season, I think it was oh no, season five. We started back with maybe either way. Um, go back here. We did a pre NWA. Uh, we did five. Uh, Quiz Essential Champions pre-NWA. That was a pretty darn good show that the professor put a lot of work into, and you'll recognize a lot of these names. And then we went to the NWA. Then we did AWA and, and WWF, of course. But um, go back to some of those episodes, and you'll get even more details on some of these names we're mentioning when we're mentioning Hackle Schmidt and uh, 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 Gotcher. And then when you go to Thez, he kind of doubled over. It went from from pre-NWA to NWA, and it'll show you, uh, Jeremy, it lists all the titles, you know, that he unified to make that world NWA title what it was uh, when they did. So uh, just some backstory there just to let you know. Uh, there's a lot more to it than just what we're kind of briefing over now, but these are, again, just some important title, some important champions, names that we think is important that you should know. And like you said, um, uh, even though it's not shown our notes, you added a uh, burn on there too. Yeah. You know, um, so with that said, anything else about those names uh, before we move on to this next one? Um, the reason I kind of went with the guys I did or the reason I wanted this in there is because in every world title match in the past, we'd hear, you know, gosh, Hackenschmidt, Fez. And we all knew the names. Maybe in Fez's case we knew why, but I'd say a lot of us didn't. But definitely in Hackenschmidt and Gotch, we knew they were famous. We knew we knew them. We knew we should know them. We didn't know why, though. That's why I wanted yeah. to get this as a point in there. Yep. Okay, let's move on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this gentleman here, man, you put him single um, because he deserves to be. Yep. And that is Gorgeous George, the original Gorgeous George. Um, he premiered on TV uh, November 11th, 1947, and it's still one of the most uh, top 100 television moments in history. Um, you know, TV was young then in its infancy, and uh, pro wrestling, when it was seen on that national level, man, it it hit those homes, and it drew eyeballs on that TV set, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he had the robes. He had the uh, the ring music. He had the hair, the hairspray. He had the slave girl or uh, the, the valet, if you will. He pop, uh, Instead of bobby pins, he had his Georgie pins, and uh, he made a big, big... Um, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, pomp and circumstance, if you will, yep. uh, about his appearance coming to the ring, and it made people watch the TV. And we talked about this a long time ago um, on our uh, greatest heels of all time, and we did like a, I think we used him as a free bird rule because we had our top ten heels, but they said number one heel though had to be uh, Gorgeous George because people would get so pissed off at how entertaining he was. Um, and yeah, I use that word in this sense because he, he, he knew how to work a television audience. He was one of the first wrestlers that realized I don't have to go out here and beat the shit out of someone. I can be a chicken shit yep. <laughs> and get people pissed off at me and, and, and be arrogant and flamboyant and, 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 and look as good as I do and wrestle as good as I do. But I don't have to do half of that stuff just basically by uh, uh, miming it, you know, and, and mimicking, hey, this, you know, uh, 
he's 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 going to get his ass kicked, but he's not letting people put their hands on him. He's afraid of him, and and he's doing heel stuff. And it's he learned to work TV, you know. Yeah. Um, and and uh, some people let TV work them. I think at that the infancy of TV, um, man, he just he he's one of the guys that caught on. You know, this this is the work. You know, that makes sense. Yep. Well, he, you know, he'd come out and he had his he had this uh, wavy platinum blonde hair. Um, so really, the the first of the and forgive me for using this term, first of the uh, the blonde sissy boy type to really yeah. you know start coming around. Uh, created look. I mean, he created the wrestling villain. You go and you look at every wrestling villain starting in 1947. They usually had bleach blonde hair. They acted like a chicken shit. Um, they were suspiciously gay, perhaps, you know, a little, little effeminate, you know. Um, yeah. they're all these things and they were all created by Gorgeous George. Uh, Gorgeous George also, Macho Man Randy Savage was one of his huge fans. That's why he used the song Pop and Circumstance. He actually went to Gorgeous George's family for permission to use the name for one of his girlfriends. Um, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali credits Gorgeous George yeah. as one of his primary influences. Gorgeous, yeah. yeah, Gorgeous George was a game changer in professional wrestling. Now, I don't know um, all the details, but uh, I heard on Cornette's show just a couple of weeks ago, they was talking about Gorgeous George Jr. Uh, mm-hmm. working at Southern. Uh, now, I'm not sure about the details of all that. You can believe what you will, what you won't. But um, but also I know that gorgeous George III that Robbie Kellum was doing that for a while, and that um, this is just rumor hearsay. And I, I I traveled with Robbie quite a bit, and a great guy. But he was uh, making claim to be in the line of uh, related to you know gorgeous the original gorgeous George. And then from my understanding, when he come to WCW because Georgie. Um, he, he, he tried out about a month before I did. They just didn't use him right away. Of course, he'd become the maestro, but when they weren't using him, I think what they did, if I'm not mistaken, um, the macho man, like you said, he, he, he bought that gimmick because I think Georgie, uh, Robbie had it copyrighted. And um, anyway, my understanding, he macho man bought that back so anyway, they put it on that girl uh, that's going to be the TV star, I guess, was uh, Gorgeous George, the girl. Mm-hmm. So that's some back history there. I know they used her on a couple of episodes, and she is going to be a TV star or something, but never never much happened after that. But but also I heard, um, and I know for a fact, I saw him a few times in Florida, uh, uh, Lanny was uh, under contract with WCW. I never saw him doing TV tapings. I'd see him when we did tapings in Florida because that's where he lived at. Uh, but rumor was, and again, this is just speculation, people, and not to get too far away from the Gorgeous George, but just kind of letting you know at the Macho Man how much you know respect and, and, and what he thought of him for his career. But apparently uh, Lanny was going to be Gorgeous George or a, or a character of that sort by bleaching his hair and doing, and he certainly could do with the moves. He had the gymnastic type background, uh, the flamboyancy in the ring. Um, I think, <clears throat> I honestly think he could have pulled it off pretty good if they had went that way. But I, there's nothing that solidifies that other than rumors that that he was on contract and he was going to be, uh, they were going to do something with him along those lines. But uh, back to the original Gorgeous George. I mean, that's. That's just kind of, like you said, taking it all the way up to modern times. But um, he was just, uh, you know, here he was, you know, guy from uh, Nebraska and ends up in Hollywood and being a big star. You know, just um, just the golden age of professional wrestling. I mean, that, that's the golden, pretty much the golden age of television, too. Yeah. You know, when you look at the 40s and 50s, they just... It's, it's almost like lightning struck twice, you know, in the same area because uh, with TV, you know, people would, you had you had radios, and then now people have this invention television, and and boom, it's a hit. People want to get one of these damn things, and they're expensive. The black and whites are expensive, you know, uh, when they when they first came out, but but people wanted them in their homes, they bought them, and then George or gorgeous George, if you will, you know, boom, he he. He understood how to work that television. You know, he didn't have to go to the arenas uh, 
and get the crap beat out of him every night or beat the crap anyone. He learned how to get over being that flamboyant. Like you said, I'm a sissified uh, playboy, uh, however you want to say it, man. But but that uh, still to be in one of the top 100 episodes of all the, uh, television to this day is incredible because, like I said, it's kind of like lightning strike twice. Uh, boy meets girl, girl meets boy, you know, in this case, boy meets TV world, TV world meets boy, and, uh, you know, boom, it's a hit. And so uh, pretty good stuff, man. But, yeah, he debuted in 1947. Here we are, you know, far, far removed from that, and it's still one of the top 100 um, television moments in history. Yep. Um, um, and people still try to mimic his, his character today. Like I said, I kind of brought it up through – about 10 years ago or so, maybe 15, but, um, you know, they still try to do something with it all the time. Um, someone will, like you said, if you look at those heel characters uh, through the years with the bleach blonde hair and the, the tan and the, the whole gimmick, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the rumor is he sold as many black and white TVs as Lucille Ball did. Yeah, you know, I, I was in my mind, I was going to say something about Lucille Ball, uh, and I, and I honestly could not remember what it was because I was like thinking, you know, I love Lucy and this and that. But but I now that you said that, I remember you have told me that quote before. Yeah. So repeat that once again. I want to hear that once again. Think about this. Yeah. So Gorgeous George, him being on TV, sold as many TV sets as Lucille Ball sold TV wow. sets. Yeah. And, you know, Lucille Ball was about the biggest fucking star on TV. Well. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Let, let, me, let me pull that back. Gorgeous George was as big a star on TV as Lucille Ball was, and Lucille Ball was the biggest star on TV. Okay, so, wow. you know, let that kind of sink in. Um, you know, pro wrestling was the perfect match for television, and this is the rule for, you know, most of the history of TV. Wrestling is cheap to produce. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you got your you, you got your pay for the guys, but hopefully you've got ticket sales or something that cover that. So all you've really got are lights, camera, and sound equipment, and uh, um, you know a road crew and a couple of union operators. It's I mean you could do TV that cost ten thousand dollars, but brought in you know half a million dollars in revenue. So TV channels and stations, especially back in the early days where you had a station but there was no content because nobody had made any yet. Pro wrestling was the perfect fit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty cool, man. That's pretty cool. Um, and think about this. He looked like, uh, and he was on TV larger in life. The guy's like 5'9 and probably 210 or 215. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's on your television. And, and like you said, he he's getting people over, uh, getting himself over, of course, but getting people over that was, you know, he, he, he's so big and tough and strong, but he also was like, no. I'm back foot backpedaling away, pussyfooting away. You know, I'm gonna do something to to get you pissed off, but I'm not gonna back it up, so to say. I'm gonna I'm gonna back a bit, play that chicken shit heel, if you will. Yeah. Um, it, it just worked, man. It just worked. You know. So I I need somebody to check into this because I have never looked it up. I heard somewhere that Billy Gunn stretched out the start of a match. To the point that no wrestling was done for 16 minutes after the bell rang. And that was some kind of like world record or something, or some kind of like, you know, not official record, but like some kind of record that people like acknowledged. And I, I really need somebody to like confirm that for me somewhere because that is your ultimate chicken shit heel opening. <laughs> if you could put yeah. it off for 16 minutes, Jesus Christ. I'd be ready yeah. to stab you after 16 minutes. And <laughs> well, you'd be very pissed off as a fan, you know, just uh, if he's stalling, using that stall tactic, if you will, because you're right there, you know, ready to see the damn match starting. But if he's playing chicken shit that much and you're getting into it that much, and you don't realize that much time has elapsed. And I'm sure that's probably a non-televised event. It's, a house, you know, probably a house show or oh, something. Oh, it had to have been. Uh, you know, but still. Um, and I'd say somewhere along the line, honestly, uh, just like uh, inclement weather that we're getting ready to have here in, in Kentucky and uh, and throughout the southeast over here is um, you go to some of these shows and I've went to shows where there's been snowstorms and uh, planes are delayed and, and windstorms where you know flights are delayed and uh, guys are having trouble getting to town and stuff. You got to stretch it out. You know we've had guys uh, small shows. Uh, 
a place called Fleming Neon in Kentucky, way up here at the uh, touches down there in Virginia. And a couple guys, Man Fernandez and Frank Murdoch, and then we're running, running late, and we only had a couple heels on the heel side. So the heel had to come out and work the first match. And then he come back out in the second match and work in a tag, you know, and just try to prolong those things. I know it's different what I'm getting at is, you know, but you're, you're prolonging your match. Uh, I'm trying to think of um, if it's Cornette's show or someone else's show, Orange maybe, uh, talking about um, – uh, someone going out and talking and, and introducing the first match and then making that match keep going. I know I was in a ring with Killer Kyle one time. Now, this wasn't a stall tactic, but, you know, the TV is supposed to start like at 7.30. Of course, you have a dark match at 7 o'clock, and people was in the stands. And uh, Kyle and I were supposed to do like a uh, about a five-minute dark match, and um, they were still setting the lights when we started. And Mark Kerr was right there going, keep going, keep going. And Cornette, I'm sure he could have easily uh, probably had someone in the back that could have went out there and done a second match. But he had enough faith in Kyle and myself. Them guys can go. And we went for about 30 minutes on a you know dark match before TV. We visited a ring with Astra. And I, they was turning lights on and off, testing microphones. This was down in Jellicoe, Tennessee, if I will. And, and you know, Mark Kerr's like, not yet, guys, not yet. So I... I just worked, you know, just kept working, just working for that 30 minutes, stalling until they could get those TV lights up and up and running to full capacity. So it's so kind of the same thing, but not, you know what I'm saying? Um, because uh, uh, he's using a stall tactic to not even touch each other, to just play the chicken shit heel and wrestle. I'm just saying that's, there is some comparison there, if you will. You have to do that sometimes. Impromptu, if you will, you know, or car is subject to change. You know? Yeah. Um, but uh, we got it to 7.30 or whatever, and uh, I don't know, a sunset flip out of nowhere or a schoolboy or whatever when Curtis said it was time, and, and Mark was professional enough, like, you know, hey, <laughs> we're both almost laughing anyway, uh, gassed and laughing both, but um, it was fun. It was easy because we both knew each other really well. Not a lot of shit was called, to be honest with you. We just kept waiting for Curtis to tell us this or that. And then um, getting the back, and I still had like I was on I was on like three of the four tapings, so I had to end up still go back out there like on the second, third, and fourth taping. Um, I think Cornette switched to I wasn't on the first taping or something to give me a little bit of breather. But uh, yeah, just fun stuff like that, man. So speaking of tapings, let's move on to this next subject: uh, taping, recording, and television. However you want to put this on here, uh, it's uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm open up open up with the title and then you go from there uh black saturday black saturday july 14th 1984 saturday morning a bunch of people in the south go to tune in to georgia championship wrestling and are caught off guard by the appearance of vince mcmahon promising to bring you your local wrestling but he's also going to bring us the guys from new york part of that was a lie um, he basically just started shipping down his New York wrestling, which the people in the South did not fucking care for. And uh, this kind of started the issue between Ted Turner and Vince McMahon, the, the rivalry, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, this set up, you know, eventually uh, JCP. This is how JCP got the WTBS time slot. Um. This eventually is what sets up the WCW Monday Night War, you know, with WWF. A lot of stuff can be traced back to Black Saturday, but I think the most important thing here is we discover Vince McMahon is not above bullshitting somebody to get his (laughs) way and drive everybody else out of business. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember that, and that day, I wouldn't remember July 14th, like I said, Um, I I do know it because I know a couple of older friends of mine, a friend of my parents, that's their birthday. But um, I, w- I, w- I definitely remember the 1984, and that's because, excuse me, I was in, um, uh, I went from junior college uh, for a couple years, and I was uh, getting ready to start my junior year. Um, so I was home, you know, working your your typical um, uh, uh, work-study program job, you know, at the local university or what have you. Mm-hmm. And um, 
went in one Saturday morning, man, I was one of those people. And I was like, I, I, I had been exposed to where I you know, lived in a different city uh, down close to Lexington. I got um, was getting the NWA some, but also we got the uh, uh, Tuesday Night Titans, I think it was, on, on USA Network because cable had been more and more exposed to me over those last three years at that point from, from like 81 here locally to, to you know, three years worth. So, um, and, of course, TBS. <clears throat> so... Because I remember that Saturday night, like, oh, my God, it was incredible. And that's a whole other story that we went on about. But on this Saturday, particular Saturday morning, I was on my routine ready to, you know, okay, this is what I do on a Saturday morning and start my day uh, before I go lift weights or go to the gym or do what I was going to do. And, man, turning on, you're like, what the fuck? Where, where's, my, where's my Georgia championship wrestling, you know? What the fuck is what – what's wrong with the TV station here? This isn't TBS. This is USA Network. What? And you're sitting there going, no, it's on the right – you know. I remember being in a student union thing going, no, it's on the right channel, man. What's going on? But instead of a, a, a Freddie Brown or, or definitely Gordon Soley or, or, you know, some of those guys – from the uh, NWA or the the Georgia Championship Wrestling, there's Vince McMahon. You're like, uh, man, maybe maybe something's wrong here. I'm not sure what it was, but people were pissed. I know that. I was one of them. Um, so, yeah. yeah, Black Saturday. So this, I mean, this sets up everything that kind of comes after that. I mean, <clears throat> it was around this time that Vince had really gone to war against Vern Gagne. You know, he was running shows in Vern's territory with guys he had hired away from Vern, who he talked into no-showing for Vern, you know, which is why contracts became a thing, because of shit like that. Yeah. Um, you know, Hulkamania, he stole Hulkamania from Vern Gagne, kind of, uh, because Vern, to put the title on Hulk, he wanted a, a cut of Hogan's t-shirt sales. Right. And Bob, yeah, Bobby, you've told us that like gimmick sales were a thing, but merchandise wasn't really a thing yet. Right, that's yeah. the whole thing, man. That's the whole deal right there. Yeah, people back then, you know, you had your gimmick table. Uh, you know, you you might sell your t-shirts, headbands. Uh, obviously, your eight by tens, your five by sevens, and what have you. Uh, anything that Ricky and Robert might have, like I said, they. As Jerry Lawler said, he didn't know if they was a, a flea market or if they was gypsies over there selling their stuff when he first <laughs> did their gimmick wars. Uh, but that's not a dig toward Ricky and Robert because I learned a lot from them doing the gimmick wars. But uh, this was merchandising, you know, mass merchandising, as you know, nowadays with the uh, – well, we done our 10 favorite T-shirts at one time. We That was one of our episodes, you yep. know. Uh, but merchandising became everything, especially through the damn 80s. You know, you had those um, – uh, the dolls and the the uh, doubter collectors items, you know, um, cards and just tons of stuff. Merchandise, of course. Vince Vince had the capacity to do. Once he got his foot in the door to where he wanted the way things were going, he knew he turned that into a merchandising mecca machine, man. Oh yeah, a mega machine, you know. Um, so yeah, it wasn't just guys standing on their, you know, intermission. Uh, or before the show, getting her early and signing a few autographs or intermission, you know, taking your T-shirts out there. It was like, fuck, truckloads of merchandise coming in and being sold by oh, peddlers, yeah. you know, like uh, that worked for the company, you know. So, yeah. Well, because um, here's the thing. Before Vince McMahon, you you and your character were kind of the same thing. And where you went, your character went. But when Vince gets his foot on wrestling's neck, he begins trademarking characters yeah and, and so you come into vince from awa you know say like you're one of the greatest of all time like kurt hanning mm-hmm. well you got to kind of sign off on your on your gimmick or you know you have to let him own your appearance and so he can merchandise you and it, this was a whole new thing and this i think this is what really sucks for wrestlers that work for him because you should be able to take your gimmick and go work on it somewhere else, and that should make everybody more money in the long run. You know, you're a big star who's coming in from somewhere. That should be a draw to new people. But under Vince's method, he doesn't want any part of anything he didn't create. Yeah, he didn't know about you then. He yeah. didn't care about he. This is the creation you are right now, you know, Um because he can copyright that. Yep. And you can go back. Yeah, you can go back to be, a good example would be just just off the top of my head is, is um you know you can go back to being Scott Hall. You can't be Razor Ramon. 
you know, because he could still merchandise or market Razor Ramon T-shirts or what have you, you know, or or it, just using that as an example. The same thing, I mean, Kurt Henning, like I said, he, he, he was basically a Mr. Perfect. You know, he was a world champion, he was great in AWA, um, but, you know, uh, going up there and getting that gimmick and what a push he got with that gimmick, you know, Mr. Perfect. But, you know, when you leave there and he's back in WCW as, as Kurt Henning, people still knew he was Mr. Perfect. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He just wasn't making money off that particular merchandise that Vince still could be making merchandise money off of. And if he's willing to put up the money and do that and let that character run for four, five, six years, however long the run you've got, man. I mean, he's entitled to that. He owns the rights to it. That's why you signed it, you know, and you're, you're wanting, um, to make it big. Why not make it in the biggest, you know, wrestling company in the world? You know? Oh yeah, so exactly. If you've got that opportunity to do so, uh, put your, you know, sign in blood right here, Mr. McMahon. Yes, sir. You know, yeah. Um, um so, no, I, I get it. I understand it. Look, I think it sucks for the wrestlers, but for Vince McMahon, it's made him millions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and for every time I say McMahon killed wrestling, he he did just as many things to make it explode into a bigger fucking attraction. Yeah, well, you might as well go on. We jumped kind of ahead of ourselves right there when you said that McMahon kills k Uh You know, back in February 10th of uh, 1989, uh, I guess it was in a state of New Jersey. It saved him about four hundred thousand um, dollars. Mm-hmm. He exposed the business. Now on that there, um, I want to say I uh, had a couple people working around me at the time. Said, "Man, did you read the paper this morning? It was either Lexington or Louisville. One of the uh, more likely it was Lexington paper is already in there uh, that uh, he has exposed the wrestling business and." Um, course i was involved in a little bit only had a few matches and stuff and, and still hadn't taken off to malenko's until uh to may of 89 but uh had some of those matches in september october november december of 88 played around some that summer getting quote trained but um anyway you know the thing is when i re- read the articles just so i could kind of prepare for this um podcast in quotes okay fake has not been used in this original articles. They had predetermined, they had scripted, they had action choreographed, physical impact is real, okay? Uh, basically stuff like that. So I, I really like that. But it, but the only thing it says here is that um, that the, uh, the wrestling purpose was uh, providing, <clears throat> get ready for this, providing entertainment not a bona fide athletic competition i like to think that there's still a bona fide athletic competition between the two people you can still have your predetermined finish and it's certainly not fake but uh with the state athletic commissions um you know they come through to, to the, they're there rather when you when the wrestling shows come through the town and they regulate, you know, they, they, they collect all the taxes from the gates. Mm-hmm. Uh, they license the wrestlers. They license the referees, the timekeepers. Uh, they have to pay for that, you know, and they tax each time. I think at one time, man, I had a license. I couldn't even tell you how many states because, I mean, I had Kentucky, obviously. Uh, West Virginia doesn't have a, um, a license commission. Uh, you know, different states are the way they are. But I had just gotten a handful of them. Uh, papers one time, and they had already, when I was in WCW, and they had like, I had one from like New York and California, all these different states that I don't know. Um, I mean, I wrestled in California and New York and stuff, obviously, I'm just saying uh, Maryland, but they had went ahead and sent ahead all the paperwork. All I had to do was sign it, so when I got to that state, they had already provided me with an athletic commission, uh, a license that I could perform in that in that state, you know. Yeah. Uh, on independent level, a lot of times, you know, if you didn't if you didn't wrestle there regularly, one of them comes to mind is Michigan. I used to go up there and wrestle quite a bit, but the promoter up there would always have me a license ready to go, you know, uh, from the first time I come in, and then maybe I worked there five or six times that year. I always had my my license from that particular state, and obviously here in Kentucky, the same thing. But WCW, that is, came through basically and 
uh, you know, packet arrives, you sign it, <laughs> you send it back into Turner Sports. And then when you went to uh, Michigan or, or uh, New York, like I said, you might get called into the office there and they, uh, check your blood pressure. And they might say, uh, you know, well, what's your weight? And um, they might say, uh, uh, let's do a random drug test on these couple guys here. And then again, a lot of times they would just get their palm, uh, you know, get a little bread there in the palm. Yeah, yeah. You know. And so that's what Vince was trying to do right there was he was trying to get out of paying a shitload of money um, for the athletic commission, I guess, in New Jersey. And he did get out of about $400,000 that first time uh, when he exposed it, if you will, or killed it, as you said. Um, but I, I did like that in the article. It, it had in quotes, fake has not been used. Predetermined, scripted, action choreographed, physical impact is real. So uh, people I do think our fans understand and know um, we enjoy professional wrestling, pro wrestling, and we enjoy that. Um, and I'm paying for it, and I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that physical contact is real. We like seeing that physical contact. It's not ballet out there, people. And I think that's why we're drawn to it so much. Uh that that way, does that make sense? You know, um, you could say, oh, yeah, uh, what's the old saying from Johnny Valentine? I might not be able to convince, you know, the people that wrestling's not real, but by God, I'm convinced you I'm real, yep. you know. And that, that, to me, is the professional wrestling aspect of it. I'm not going to let them see through my work, you know, and I think the true professionals that's what they do they, they they cover the mistakes if they make a mistake but also they 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 work through it that you know what you're not going to be able to see through this work um it's not you know we're going to work that snug that tight uh, i'm not saying stiff even one anyone in ring something like i'm just saying but when you work it you work it enough that you're professional enough that you're like damn that's real you know so Anyway, where do we go from here, Jeremy? Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to comment on real quick, just coming off the tail end of that, was um, I think it was in one of Rock Ram's books, but I can't remember where I read it. But back in the 60s here in California, they were talking about whether, you know, what to do about pro wrestling, because obviously the commissioners figured it out, you know. And they they started going like I look I don't want to waste my fucking time going to these shows you don't need me there nobody's gonna get hurt nobody you know I don't need to be there to follow the rules, but they wouldn't unlist pro wrestling as a sport because the state depended on those fees coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they did was they kind of reached this weird compromise. When you had a wrestling show, you had to use the word exhibition somewhere in there. Okay. And then if you if your local commissioner wanted to go, he'd go. And if he didn't, he didn't have to because it was an exhibition round. Mm-hmm. But um, they knew they had an idea. It's just at the same time, everybody at the state's going, yeah, but we can't we can't stop collecting this money. We need yeah, they, the athletic commissioner here in Kentucky. He, he shows up at all, at least your first show. He tries to show up as many as he can. They have now divided it to one of them is an MMA boxing official, and, uh, and the other one is a, a wrestling commissioner, if you will. Mm-hmm. But also they, they had deputies, what they, they called deputies, too, uh, that would go out as an assistant, basically, and they could show up at your show, and they could make sure. Because you've got like 48 hours to turn in your ticket sales and your, your, your ticket receipts and things like that, and your gate money and your taxes uh, that you still have to pay in the state of Kentucky, you know. Yep. Uh, the... Uh, the commissioners here, of course, when they go to to uh, the bigger shows in Lexington or Louisville, that's the ones that New York or you know WWE uh, are running. You know, they they obviously go because they're fans uh, of those, but they also know those are big money makers too, and so they go there and for sure get their palms. You know, uh, uh, nice little nice little handshake from that, if you will. You well, know? yeah. Look, I mean, so, you know, you got to keep those big commerce wheels greasy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, what always, what always cracked me up around here is I remember in the 90s and early 2000s, people would promote wrestling shows, right? And you know they're paying the guys 25 50 bucks, maybe. Maybe. Um, but also, they, they were doing it so on the cheap that when you went into the building, you either had to sign or there was a sign saying that you entered at your own risk, meaning they didn't even have insurance for the show. Uh, and that shit would never fly if the commissioners actually had to go out and check on this stuff. Right, you know? right, yeah. 
Yeah, you've got to get a bond in Kentucky. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what that bond. It used to be like a $125 bond. That would assure you that you could get $5,000 worth of insurance, which was what was required at the time. So once you got that was required for your license, rather. So once you got your license, which um, at one time was three, three twenty-five, they've done it different ways. It used to be a hundred dollars per city. Then it was like uh, three hundred dollars covers the entire state for one year. Um, I'm not quite sure. Then, then your wrestlers' license, your your timekeepers, your they have a new thing uh, just a couple years ago. Uh, basically, a backstage pass that you could go in the locker rooms. You could go up to the um, if you were a part of the show. Um, and you go, you know, you're going to be an announcer. There are certain areas you go to. Event staff license, what it's called. Yeah, it's about twenty five dollars something. But also that that bond was an issue to get the state license of a, of the like I said a, a five thousand dollar bond for the three hundred dollar license. But then that gave you the um, the benefit of now you have to get your insurance. You know, see what I'm saying? So then you still had that. Even though you had that bond that's covered five thousand, that was just the bond that you could have a license. Then you had to have your insurance. That's three separate things you had to get mm-hmm. um, uh, in order to to promote in this area. You know, in the state of Kentucky, Commonwealth of Kentucky, if you will. And like I said, each wrestler had to be uh, licensed as well. Um, they they changed several of the rules. Um, Regarding uh, bleeding, you know, blading, whatever you want to call it, uh, barricades around the ring. Uh, I know they split up about, oh man, four or five years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, they split it up to, like I said, the, the boxing commission. I think MMA and boxing took off as one, and they left wrestling, the pro wrestling, as separate. So they had two different commissioners out of Louisville, Frankfurt area that was appointed, you know, they were appointed, but uh, they were doing several um, of those uh, shoot fighting MMA type fights. Uh, they done a couple here, several in Lexington, several in Louisville, and so they fell under a different regulation, if you will, and so um, they finally, but again, it's one of those things, um, you could take it or leave it with the regulations. It's like, do you want to walk into a building and sign a piece of paper that says, you know, you're entering at your own risk, or would you rather have a license, you know, yeah. in, in, a, in a commission state and uh, know that, you know, okay, you're renting out this gymnasium. If they tear the floor up, uh, they've got insurance to cover it. You know, if they tear the locker room up, they've got insurance to cover it, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's, just, so, say, let's just say, like, you take a fucking bad bump. Let's say you get, yeah. yeah, let's say you take a backdrop and you land with your back across the ropes or something. Um, you know, there's a reason that insurance is required. Say you fucking throw a chair out of the ring and crack some old lady in the head. Yeah. You know, there's, I mean, this shit is just, I, I remember watching that and just like, you know, it's, it's one lawsuit and this shit will never <laughs> happen again. Right. You know, right. yeah. Yeah. But so, anyways, Bobby, that's why we like professional wrestling because they pay for yes. their fucking insurance. There you go, man. That's for sure. All right, man. Well, I think we've covered everything this week, man. I know we'll be back next week. Um, Not sure what the topic's going to be. I'm sure it'll be another good one. And then I think um, at the end of the month, I'm going to do a solo one. Um, uh, uh, I'm working on something that I think everyone will like, or I hope they will, and I hope to surprise you with it, um, as well as our fans, just something fun. so, uh, anyway, until then, Jeremy, is there anything else we need to catch up on? Like I said, we're kind of honored Black History Month this, the last couple of episodes. We've, um, we've talked about Valentine's Day. By the time you're listening to this, folks, you missed a fucking boat. So, uh, hope you didn't get your heart broken and hope you didn't eat too much chocolate or shove a rose up your ass or something. I don't know what, how you all celebrate your Valentine's well, Day. But, if that's what you're uh, into, whatever. you know. If that's what yeah. you're into, you know. It could be yeah. golden or it could be chocolate. Just uh, watch out for those thorns, you know. Yep. Um, yep. So. <laughs> you know, you know, St. Valentine in the Catholic tradition, he was a martyr who had his hands cut off and hung in a store window. I, I don't know what that has to do with falling in love. I just always found that to be amazing. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. 
can't you tell us something about like Cupid maybe shooting someone in the ass with an arrow and leaving a positive note, not some guy getting fucking hands cut off and hung up in a store window? Uh, what the fuck is it with you Catholics? Well, I don't know. Fuck. Well, ex-Catholics, Bobby, ex-Catholics. But, um, no, that's... Uh, I'm not picking on religion, believe me. I'm, I'm not. Uh, everyone's got their own thing. I just know kind of you and I got our own little thing going. That's, that's, that's one of those things like a lot of people don't want to hear our stances on that. So we're exactly. not here about politics and religions. Uh, but hell, maybe Cupid will shoot you in the ass. Who, how about this? Who fucking believes? You can believe that. Okay. Hand, martyr, hands cut off, hanging a, hung in a window. Okay. Or you can believe, uh, how about this other one, Jeremy? Okay. You know, little fucking baby with wings and he flies around with a fucking arrow and he shoots people in the ass and they fall in love. I mean, six, six one way, half a dozen another. I don't really give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like, uh, hopefully you just didn't get your heart broken. Uh, if you, if you got got a lover uh uh more power to you and i hope you had a hell of a, a, a valentine's day or if you fucking lived in chicago and it's a saint valentine's day massacre or something i don't know man just just putting it out there <laughs> you believe what you want to believe because if you come here for religion or politics you're not going to like what you hear yeah so that's you're, why we don't talk about it <laughs> you're, you're you're in the wrong venue for all of that yeah you're in a podcast here for fucking professional wrestling and um, we had to say the word <coughs> entertainment a couple times a day, but um, uh, in regards to professional wrestling. So um, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, we talk, we talk pro wrestling here and the occasional dick or fart joke, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but Bobby. A bitch, I don't know where the fuck Melanie's at. I haven't heard from her since last. Well, what happened last after the Super Bowl? Did you cut her loose or what? Well, you know, hey, I said Tampa Bay all the way, you know. Uh, uh, ah, fuck, maybe she went back to Florida. Fuck, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, shit. Man. Well, Bobby, I guess with all that being said, we should probably go ahead and call it quits, huh? Yes, well, let's just... Um, Let's just do that. Let's just do that. All right. Well, for uh, the late Tex Johnson, myself, Professor Jeremy Vilmer, and Arn Anderson's favorite enhancement talent, Bobby Blaze, bye-bye, everybody.